Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Comprehensive Video Review I work at a security counseling firm that specializes in working with corporate and local government contractors to evaluate their security needs and advise any changes that should be implemented to their network, surveillance devices, and personnel. It may sound boring, and that's because it usually is. Occasionally we get interesting problems that need solving, but usually we're just coming in to correct things after there's been some incident that became an expensive headache for whoever owns the property. In other words, we're there to stop the next lawsuit. The thing that piqued my interest about the Murphy Park assignment was that there hadn't been any recent incidents that my company was aware of. And looking at the initial survey packet, it appeared that their camera systems, while old, were surprisingly comprehensive. Hell, 20 years earlier, they would have been state-of-the-art. And while the image quality no doubt needed an upgrade, they had already fully converted to an NAS drive with cloud backup five years ago. That's when I reached the last page of our packet, which is essentially our work order sheet telling us what the client wants done. I expected to see a camera upgrade or possibly an overall evaluation of their security staff, but it was neither. Instead, it said, Comprehensive Video Review. This is one of our least requested services, both because it's rarely needed and because it's so time-consuming and, consequently, expensive. The client identifies a period of time and what activity they are targeting, and then we go through everything within those parameters. This could be hours or even days or weeks worth of video, and typically it only gets used when someone is suspected of stealing from their company and forensic analysis of their work computer isn't getting the job done. It's mind-numbingly boring work, but we get a 10% commission on top of our salaried pay for jobs that take longer than a week and require us to be away from home. This job was well over the state line, and... But that couldn't be right. I read it again. Sure, I had made a mistake the first time. But no. It said that the video review was to be conducted from September 1st, 1998 forward. Over 20 years of video. Had they kept it all? That seemed extremely unlikely, especially given the storage considerations of the pre-digital videos. And how could one person possibly go through all that? Even if I got a five-man crew, which was never going to happen, and we scrubbed at high speed, skimming for just the high-activity hotspots, it would take months to go through that much footage, even one camera. And according to the survey packet, Murphy Park had 28. I asked my boss if this was a joke. He just shrugged. Said the client probably didn't know what they were asking for, and that I should go check it out to see what they really needed and give them an estimate. Just to make sure, he added, that they understood it was going to be expensive. Money is not of consequence in this matter. We understand the logistics of the undertaking and are prepared to render whatever fees you feel are appropriate. I rubbed my chin, searching for the right words. I wanted to be clear without sounding condescending. This man, Mr. Jenkins, seemed to be perfectly intelligent, but I had to believe he didn't really appreciate what he was asking for. Ah, um, well, that's fine, but just logistically, how many cameras are we talking about? The man had a slender frame and a long, mousy face that twitched in surprise at my question. <laughs> cameras? Oh, no. Just the one for your company. We've contracted with other organizations for the rest, and we'd like you to focus your efforts on the primary camera covering the Northern Promenade. I nodded. That was more reasonable, but still. And you really want me to review all the way back to 1998? His nose twitched again. 
Yes, yes. It's critical that we have everything reviewed going back to the opening of the park on September 1st, 1998. It's all organized and archived, and we can have people bring you the videos as you request them. Jenkins paused, his eyes wide as he searched my face with what's something akin to nervousness. Is that going to be a problem? I let out a short laugh before I could catch myself. (laughs) A problem? No, not really. I mean, I can do the job, but you have to understand that we're talking over 8,700 hours being recorded just for one year, and this is over 21 years worth of footage. I have software that can help with some of the newer footage, but the older stuff? Even scrubbing through it as fast as I can, it would likely take me two to three weeks to make it through a year. At two weeks a year, you're talking around 10 or 11 months for me to finish everything. That's a rough estimate, but you'd be looking at a cost north of $100,000, plus expensives before we're done. I gave the man an apologetic smile. So, if you can narrow it down some, we can talk about some options that are more... That price sounds perfectly reasonable. We can pay half the money up front if you wish. I blinked. Uh, I... What? You're going to pay that kind of money? Just like that? The man glanced away for a moment, his expression growing, worried as his skin paled. Looking back at me, he nodded. Certainly. Tell me the amount required and it will be sent to your company today. That was on January 3rd, 2019. By January 5th, I was sent up in a new extended stay lodge on the outskirt of Jessica's Resolve, a strangely named little town 20 miles north of Empire, a larger town that held Murphy Park at its center. Our company's travel coordinator had asked if I didn't want to stay at one of the places in Empire. They were closer to the work site and looked nicer as well, at least online. But I held firm to my request for lodging out of town. Something about that place, not just the park, but the entire town, it just didn't sit right with me. From the first time I'd met Mr. Jenkins at the park admin's office, I'd had the sense of someone watching me. I tried to chalk it up to the cameras, but somehow that didn't feel true. I'd spent far too much time in this job to get spooked just because there was a camera on me. No, it was something unique to Empire, a peculiar weight that would always lift a few miles out of town. I felt that weight on me in those first few days and weeks, and if I'm honest, it's not something I've ever gotten used to. My days were largely mundane, and during my limited interactions with people who worked in the town or at the park, everyone acted friendly enough. But despite that, I still found myself always rushing toward the city limits when I got to head back home to JR and my home away from home. The work itself was largely tedious as it sounds. To the park's credit, they really had preserved all the footage and had all the legacy equipment I needed to review the older stuff, but it still meant fast-forwarding through endless footage, all showing the same 70-yard stretch of grass cut through by a wide, paved walkway. There were trees along the promenade and in the distance, and the periodic benches of wrought iron and wood gave weary travelers a place to rest a while. All in all, it seemed like a nice and well-maintained park, though it was typically fairly empty except for one of the weekends and during the summer months. For most of the part, I sat there watching a scene that could have been a still shot if not for the shifting of the sun and the occasional introduction of a bird or squirrel into the boundaries of the camera's frame. With no guidance or direction other than keep an eye out for anything of note, I found myself looking down at the barrel of the longest, most boring assignment of my career. That 10k commission bonus was a big incentive, but damn, was I dreading all these hours of watching nothing happening. And then I started watching October of 1998. That was the first time that things started to change. October 30th, 1998. At approximately 2051, a figure wearing a skeleton costume comes into view on the right side of the frame. He is running along the promenade and continues to look backward. A few seconds later, a second, very similar figure comes into view. Like like the first one, this one is dressed in a skeleton costume and is running, though it appears he is chasing the first individual. As the first person leaves the frame on the left, the one on the right leaps forward to close the distance. It must be the angle of the camera because this looked like an impossible jump unless he was training for the Olympics, 
The second figure continues to run upon landing, and neither of the subjects are seen again. October 24th, 2001. At 14.40, a bike messenger comes into view. He breaks on the middle bench in the frame and gets off his bike. Taking what appears to be a small black envelope from his bag, he sticks it under the bench. After glancing around for a moment, he gets back on his bike and paddles out of view. October 27th, 2005. Around midnight, a hulking figure lumbers into the left side of the frame. Despite the size, long, black hair frames a face that is distinctly feminine, though for the most part the rest of her form is indistinct. This is because her clothes are baggy and torn, looking more like a collection of rags than anything else. The peculiar distinction to all this is that her back, which appears to be humped to a crest equal to the top of her head, is covered in a crochet doily of bright white like my grandmother used to bring out at Easter. This is all strange enough, but after a moment, the cause of her lumbering gait becomes clear. She's dragging a small coffin, possibly a child's coffin, by its end handle, through the grass behind the benches. It is the same brilliant white as the doily, and while it appears to be very heavy, the woman makes good progress and is soon gone. About 2.18, a badly injured man stumbles toward the benches from the tree line far in the distance. He collapses at the edge of the promenade, blood from several wounds trickling out onto the white stones of the walk. Thirty minutes pass, and then you see the flash of lights as paramedics come into view and check him before carrying him away on a bodyboard. As he opens it, the two lamps on either side of his position flicker and then go out. After a moment, the one on his right comes back, followed by the one on the left. As this happens, however, another farther down goes out, as though the darkness traces the path of something unseen. October 27th, 2017 for two hours on this day, and the two that follow, an old stooped woman with bandages wrapping her feet and legs sits on the same bench. A crooked cigarette dangles from her mouth as she talks incessantly, dancing with the rhythm of her silent words. But while I can't hear what she was saying, it's clear that she thinks she's talking to someone, even though the park around her is empty. And on the third day, when she jumps to her feet and appears to begin calling out, cupping her yellowed-fingered hands around her mouth as she moves out of the camera's gaze, I know that at least in her own mind, her phantom companion has abandoned her. October 29th, 2018. Around 2200 hours, a heavy-set middle-aged woman limps up toward one of the benches. Her clothes are dirty, and as she looks around in every direction, I feel a flush of sympathy for her. There's a desperation to her that reminds me of a wounded animal that's being hunted. Even though I know that this happened months earlier, I still find myself wishing I could help her. That's when she takes a final look around and bites out of her right wrist. The blood comes immediately, and as she falls to her knees, she immediately begins scrawling something across the white stones of the walk. I can't make all of it out. The image is fuzzy, and she's blocking part of it with her body as she works but I see what looks like the professor is. And then for the first time in all those months, the camera goes down. When the image comes back, an hour has passed, and both the woman and the crimson message she was writing are gone. I've often considered asking about these strange incidents, but I always resist the temptation. That's not my job. I'm not here to investigate or question my client. I'm here to record and report. Still, over the past 10 months, I've only felt my unease grow. It's not just the work or the strange things I've sometimes seen in doing it. It's this park, this town. There's something wrong with this place. I've considered asking for a transfer, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Even with the footage that's occurred during my time here, I keep telling myself I should be caught up to present within a matter of weeks. Yesterday, I came into the park security office to find a new hard drive. I assumed it was the June and July 2019 footage I'd asked for the day before, but when I plugged it in, I found only one file inside. It was video footage dated November 30th, 2019. At first, I figured it was just a mistake on the timestamp. I'd always been impressed with how accurate and consistent their system was, but nothing was foolproof. But then I saw what or rather who was in the video. I came from the bottom of the frame, staggering toward the nearest bench and falling down onto it. 
I sat back up after a moment, and I could see from the camera's vantage that this other me had dark stains like mud or blood all over his hands and sleeves. As I watched, I ran my hands through my hair, causing clump spikes of hair to stand out from my head and only making me look more insane. Because my expression... I didn't look right at all. As the other me lowered his head, I saw his shoulder shaking. At first, I thought it was for laughter, but then I saw he was crying. Harder and harder until his whole body shook. When he lifted his head again, he stared straight into the camera, stared straight into me and began to scream. I pushed back from the monitor, almost as though I was afraid that the other self might find a way to come out of the video and into my more sane version of the world. But when I edged closer and looked again, he lost interest in me. Instead, he was looking down at himself, appearing to scream even harder. It was understandable. He was being erased, after all. As I watched, he slowly started fading away, the fighting and thrashing doing nothing to slow his erasure from the world. There was a final ghost of movement, and then he was gone, as though he'd never been there. As though I had never been there. I'm writing this so there is a record. I've tried to leave the area over 20 times in the last day, but I always somehow wind up back at the park or in my room. I've tried calling people I know, asking for help, but they don't seem to understand. They just say it was good hearing from me and then they hang up. I'll try sending this account to people or maybe posting it online somewhere. It'd be logical to think that this won't go through either, but somehow I think it will. Because it's all a trap, you see. (laughs) There's something in this place. Something lured me here, showed me all these things, and now it won't let me go. I think it wants me to tell what I've seen, so I warn you now. Don't investigate this. Don't try to find me or the things I've seen. This story is dangerous, and as I write it, I understand I should destroy it, erase it, the way I saw myself get wiped out of the world, but somehow, I don't think it will. That's part of the trap, too. It's a simple trap, but it's clever. It relies on our own mistakes. Mine were in thinking I was safe, removed from the things I was seeing, the world I was visiting, and yours, well, I think you've made at least two. You probably think you found a made-up story, something to entertain you or at least kill a little time. That's your first mistake. This is all real. It's happening to me right now. I'm trapped in this place, and every day I get closer to that park bench in my end. As for your second mistake... It's easy. You think you found the story, but you're wrong. It found you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Something was in the trees. Nine years ago, I had a car accident. It was around October 16th or 17th in 2010. Whatever, it was late at night on a Sunday, I remember that much. Because as I drove down the winding dark road that would take me past Empire and the handful of smaller towns that lay between me and my bed, I was talking to myself, saying how stupid I had been to come all this way for Jeffrey's Halloween party, especially when I had work the next day. My cousin Jeffrey is a good guy and he's always been a good friend to me, but he's also always had it easy. His part of the family is wealthy and his idea of work is telecommunicating from home a couple days a week while goofing off the rest of the time. He doesn't live in the real world, and so when he wants to throw an elaborate Halloween party, he not only does it in the middle of the month, but he does it on a Sunday, when we should know a lot of people he invites are going to have to drive a long way. 
Because Jeffrey lives in Jessica's Resolve, a little town in the middle of nowhere, I'm sure he's a rock star out there with his money and his parties and his revolving door of beautiful girlfriends. But out in the real world, you have to work for things. Stuff isn't just handed to you. You have to take it. But if I'm honest, I've always been a bit jealous of Jeffrey. He's never bragged about his money, and I've never seen him be shitty to anyone. But that hadn't stopped me from finding reasons to resent him or find fault with whatever he did. And of course, I didn't have to go to the party in the first place. I went because, for at least a little while, I got to pretend I was part of that brighter, prettier world. I left that world once. I pulled out of his long driveway well past midnight. The roads were all black and coiled, and my limited familiarity with the area wasn't much help on that dark and cloudy night. The worst part was how tired I was. It had been a busy weekend, and I'd stayed longer than I'd intended, talking to a girl Jeffrey introduced me to. At the time, it seemed very important, but now I can't even picture her face. So I talked to myself to stay awake. I started off monologuing about the woman I'd met, but as I got sleepier and more resentful of how far I'd let it go, I shifted to talking about how dumb I was to have stayed so late. How inconsiderate Jeffrey was to throw his party on a Sunday. How tired I was going to be the next day when I finally made it home. And then I woke up as I was plunging off the road, the back of the car seeming to float for a moment before slamming back down at the gravel shoulder and picking up speed, pulling me further down the embankment and into the darkness of the trees waiting below. There was no time to stop or change course, and I barely managed to close my eyes as the world around me exploded. Glass, metal, and wood collided and protested as the front of the car slammed into one of the wide tree trunks at the bottom of the hill. I felt a band of fire flare across my chest as my seatbelt held me in place, but for whatever reason, the airbag never deployed. I tried to slow my head's forward momentum, but my forehead still struck the wheel with enough force to split the skin and send a thin ribbon of blood down into my eyes as I sat back and began trying to look around. A large tree branch stretched out next to me, impaling my empty passenger seat and making my stomach loosen as I realized how close I'd come to dying. Instead, I was surprisingly okay. My chest and head hurt some, and I was very shook up a bit and woozy, but all things considered, I didn't think I had any lethal energy. My chest and head hurt some, and I was very shook up and a bit woozy, but all things considered, I didn't think I had any lethal injuries. I couldn't get to my driver's side door to open, so I clumsily climbed out the other side. I intended to just walk away, but my knees began to buckle as soon as I stepped out of the car. Catching myself, I crawled some distance away before stopping to rest and check my phone. It was dead. I had meant to plug it up when I started driving, but I guess I was tired and just forgot. Either way, it was looking like I'd have to make my way up the road and just try and flag down the next car that came by. Despite being near the outskirts of Empire, I didn't remember seeing many cars on the road before the crash, so I might be waiting a while. It's as I got unsteadily back to my feet that I noticed an orange glow in the distance. Not in the direction of the road, but deeper into the woods. I didn't like the idea of venturing further into the dark with thoughts of snakes and other wild animals crowding for position in my mind. But it looked like firelight. Maybe someone was camping and had a bonfire nearby. If so, I might find help a lot sooner than waiting by the road. So I stumbled forward, and yes, it was clearly some kind of firelight. It was a bit farther away than I had first thought, and between my unsteadiness and the uneven ground, I was making very slow progress, but I was getting closer. After what felt like hours, but was probably just a few minutes, I had made my way into the center of a large oval ring of giant oak trees and found the source of the flickering light. It was a small torch, set just below one of the oaks. At first, I was more focused at looking around the clearing itself. There were no people there, or signs of them for that matter. The ground was largely scraggly grass and bare earth that didn't have the appearance of possibly having been traveled or walked on recently, though I couldn't have said by what. 
All I knew was that in the orange circle of light the torch provided, I could see various scrapes and cuts in the earth as though something had been done there, and not too long before. I wanted to explore more, but I was nervous about venturing past my newly found sanctuary of torchlight, so instead I turned back to the tree itself. There'd been something there, right? I'd only half noticed it in my eagerness to look for people in the clearing, but... Yeah. Someone had nailed something, or some things, to the tree just above the height of the nearby torch. They were diamonds, or uh, diamond-shaped pieces of meat. There were seven of them, all roughly two inches tall and one inch wide, and they were all attached to the tree in two haphazard rows by... It wasn't nails. I reached out my finger to the end of one of the long needles that protruded from the top of each diamond of flesh. I barely touched it. But I immediately brought my hand back with a hiss of pain. When I looked, I had a pinprick of blood on the pad of my index finger. They weren't nails or needles. They were hairs. No, not hairs, really. More like quills or something, I guess. Whatever they were, they were razor sharp. I felt my unease growing into fear. I didn't know what was going on, but I could feel a panicked need to run away beginning to blossom in my chest. Trying to fight it back, I looked at the things hanging on the tree again. They were clearly cut out of something's skin, and it had been done with precision. The clean lines and sharp angles reminded me of the diamonds you see on old playing cards. They also looked to be largely different from each other in color and texture, but I still had no idea what they really were, and I didn't need to abandon the possibility of getting help just because I was spooked. I thought I'd seen a shadowed shape between the trees on the other side of the clearing. Maybe it was a tent or some other sign of people. For all I knew, someone could be asleep over there. I just needed to be quiet and get a bit closer, get a better look. When the night's half-moon still buried in the clouds, I decided I would have to borrow the torch. It took some effort, but I managed to wrench it from the ground after several tries. And holding it out in front of me for light and protection, I started toward the far end of the tree ring. When the light hit the thing hanging between the two of the trees there, it took several moments before my mind could fully register what I was seeing. I kept wanting to make it into something that made sense, something that wasn't horrific, and so I kept staring at it, gasping like a dying fish, wanting it to not be as bad as it was. It was a man, or the remains of one. His head had been removed, as had most of his organs. What was left, the skin, muscle, and bone, was tied at the wrists and ankles to the two supporting trees hung there like a dead animal waiting for the butcher. Just then, I heard a sharp rustling noise nearby. I looked around before realizing it wasn't behind me or to either side. It was above me. The flame from the torch wavered as my hands began to shake, but I held onto it as best I could as I raised my gaze to the trees above. The peaks of these oaks were over 60 feet in the air, far above how high my meager firelight would do. But still... In the near black dark of the treetops, I thought I sensed something. Something large was perched up there watching me, deciding what to do. It was as I was still peering up in the darkness that the rustling sound came again, briefly, this time louder, and as if on cue, the thick clouds obscuring the moon began to part. It... It stretched between three or four of the trees. It made me think of a centipede, or a thick snake, though I saw several long arms or legs along its length, even from such a distance. It was obvious it was massive, and I remember wondering how the trees could possibly support something that large on their upper branches. That, and all the other thought, fled from me when it began to move slightly, and the rustling began again. It was the thing's quills. I couldn't make them out until they were moving, but all along its back were long, quivering lines that I felt sure matched the dark needles embedded in the nearby tree. The noise, particularly after seeing its source, sent off something primal in my heart. 
the same kind of instinctual fear I had always felt hearing a rattlesnake's rattle or a mountain lion's scream. The bone-deep warming that said, Danger. Stop. Get away. I threw down the torch and began to run blindly, not caring where I was going so much that it was away from whatever that thing might be. I remember running some distance, and then... The next thing I recall is being loaded on a bodyboard back into the back of an ambulance. A woman, I think, one of the EMTs, telling me that I was alright to just calm down. That they were going to take me to Empire General Hospital. I was going to be fine. I was, at least for the most part. I spent the next five days in the hospital as they treated me for a concussion, a bruised kidney, two sprained wrists, and one fractured ankle, and various cuts and bruises. Three different times, doctors and nurses came and asked me what I remembered of what happened, and each time I told them that I didn't remember much of anything after the accident. It was a lie, of course, but I couldn't bring myself to tell them the truth. One reason for that, of course, was because they would have thought I was either crazy or out of it because of my concussion, and either way, it wouldn't have helped anything. But the other reason was because I knew why they kept asking, why they were so curious about what I'd gone through that night. They wanted to know how. Out of all my understandable cuts and bruises, sprains and break, I had also managed to get one very unique and specific wound on the side of my stomach just above the belly button. A quarter inch deep with clean, straight lines. It didn't look like it came from a random gouge of glass or metal or wood. Even now, all these years later, the hollow of shallow scar tissue has retained its shape. The shape of a diamond, like you might find on an old playing card, or hanging from a tree in the darkest part of the woods. Between the Rows this is really lame. I shot Allison an irritated look. She seemed to ignore it as she stared past me at the signs plastered around the ticket booth for Jefferson Farm Corn Maze. My sister was always a naysayer when it came to stuff like this, but her comment was still tactless, even for her. It was Jenny's idea after all, the first suggestion or sign of enthusiasm she had since she'd come to live with us a month earlier. If Allison kept shitting on her idea, she might retreat back into her shell for good this time. Turning to Jenny, I smiled. You have to forgive Allison. She was born with a handicap, you understand. It's called being a fucking bitch. Jenny's eyes twinkled with surprise and merriment as she looked up at me, and she let out a little laugh when Allison punched me in the arm. No, I get it, Jenny said more seriously. It might be kind of lame, but it looked fun on the internet, and I thought we could have a good time. Get into the Halloween spirit a bit. Allison interrupted her. You're right, it'll probably be fun. She looked around with a sigh. Sorry, not to be a downer. Tell you what, you two get your tickets and I'll get us drinks. I followed her gaze and saw a large food truck set up serving soft drinks and beers, while another nearby truck sold funnel cakes and popcorn. She was eyeing the guy selling beers with interest, and I had to concede that he looked just greasy enough to be her type. Shrugging, I gave her a nod and turned with Jenny toward the ticket line. I had never known our cousin Jenny very well. She was the only child of our mother's brother and they lived on the other side of the state from us, though it wasn't so far in distance that it explained how rarely we ever saw them. The truth was that her family had always been fairly isolated. They would come around at Christmas time or Thanksgiving, maybe once every three or four years, but even then they didn't talk a lot or stay very long. They were never rude or weird acting, just kind of quiet. Uncomfortable looking or like they felt out of the loop because they weren't around more. I felt a bit sorry for them growing up, but I still always enjoyed their visits because of Jenny. Jenny was a lot more outgoing than her parents, and even though she was a girl, I always clicked with her a lot more than Allison did. Maybe it was because Allison was older. She was worried about what she was going to do when she graduated college next spring while me and Jenny were just getting into our last year of high school. Or maybe it was that their personalities didn't mesh well. 
Either way, over the years, I had been guilty more than once of wishing that I could swap out Allison for Jenny on a permanent basis. Jenny poked me in the side. Do you want to do any of the other stuff or just the corn maze? We were getting close to the front of the line, and her question prompted me to look at the menu of options hanging above the ticket booth window. There was a corn maze, a smaller, haunted corn maze, and a hayride. I weighed the money as well as Allison's patience in my head. Hmm, it's already past nine, and the corn maze looks huge. You cool with just doing that? I imagine it'll take a while. I let off the rest of my thought that Jenny didn't need to be exposed to whatever fake blood and violence would be waiting for us in the haunted maze. She seemed to consider it for a moment before nodding. Yeah, that sounds good. How about we'll be in the corn maze for a long time anyway? The night we found out Jenny was coming to live with us was a Saturday just like this one. I had planned on staying in and watching TV that night, and Allison was home for the weekend to see some guy she was dating. Or at least, one of the guys she was dating. While we hadn't talked about it directly, I had the distinct impression that she had a boyfriend at college, too, and that most likely neither guy knew about the other. Not that I cared. If someone was dumb enough to date her in the first place, I had very little sympathy to spare. I remember our parents coming home from shopping and being strangely quiet. They'd called us into the kitchen, our mother looking like she was in shock, her eyes red but not teary, our father rubbing her back with one hand while distractedly pulling at his mustache with the other. After a few moments of tense silence, our father started to explain. There had been some kind of incident at Jenny's house. A home invasion, possibly, though no one could say for sure. All that was certain was that she had come home the night before from a football game to find that her parents were both gone and that there was blood all over the living room. At this point, our father had made a point of explaining that Jenny had two friends with her when she discovered they were gone and that she had been at the football game for hours before that. As though we needed some reassurance, she wasn't the one who had hurt her own parents. I felt mildly irritated and offended by the suggestion. Jenny was one of the nicest and gentlest people I'd known, and even in my limited time with her over the years, I knew she loved her parents very much. The idea of her hurting them or somehow being tied to their disappearance? Well, it was just absurd. Still, I pushed down my frustration at my father's delivery of the terrible news and tried to listen. So far, there was no sign of them. Their phones and cars, wallets and keys, all those things had been left behind. After a few hours of investigation at child services determining she was going to have to be placed with a relative because she was still 17, our parents had gotten the call. Until her parents were found alive, however unlikely that might be, or she turned 18, she needed a place to stay, and we were her only relatives. For the first time, I felt a thrill of excitement at the idea of having Jenny around. I had always wanted to be closer with my big sister, but we were very different from each other, and as we had gotten older, those differences seemed to multiply. I loved Allison, but I didn't think I liked her that much, and I certainly couldn't say we were very good friends. Jenny, on the other hand, was awesome. We had similar interests, and she didn't respond to everything with sarcasm, or like she was defending against some kind of attack. Just the opposite. She was calm, laid back, and with an enthusiasm and sweetness that made you feel better just being around her. By the time Allison got back with our drinks, I was over my earlier anger and back to having a good time. Allison seemed in a better mood, too, leading us to the long line to get into the corn maze without any of her usual eye-rolling or complaints. Jenny handed out small maps to each of us. Looking at the small square of paper, I saw with a surprise it was a rough drawing of the corn maze itself. I held it up to Jenny. Isn't this kind of cheating? She grinned. Nah, not really. It helps some, but once you're in there, everything looks the same. I usually find the map messes me up more than it helps, but we've got it if you want to use it at least. Allison was still studying it when she asked, So have you done these mazes before? Ginny nodded. Yeah, me and my... My my family used to do them almost every year. A tradition, I guess. Her expression grew sad for a moment before brightening again. But the maze is different every year, and if you come back to the same place, the only advantage I have is some experience. Allison raised an eyebrow at her. 
corn maze experience. <laughs> Is that a thing? Our cousin grinned and gave a shrug as we moved up the line. It's more useful than you may think. There were a surprising number of people at their Jefferson Farm corn maze. Kids strung out on sugar, running to get on the hayride as they were chased by beleaguered parents. Clusters of squealing teenagers running out of the haunted maze to the repetitive, whining roar of a chainless chainsaw. And in our own line, a mixture of young and old waiting for their turn to enter the giant corn maze. As far as we could tell, they were letting in groups of four or five people every couple of minutes. I guess the idea was that you would get a fairly even number of people coming in and going from the maze by staggering people's entry. While this may have worked wonders for the isolated ambience inside the maze itself, on the outside, they kind of sucked. We edged our way forward, but after over 40 minutes, we still hadn't made it to the front of the line. Jenny had actually made a supply run at the 20 minute mark, bringing us fresh drinks and a funnel cake. Then, when we were ten people from entering, a man who seemed to work there came up to the gatekeeper of the maze, telling him it was time to cut the line for the night. The gatekeeper, a boy who looked only a couple of years older than me, cupped his hands around his mouth and yelled to the line of seventy or eighty people that the maze was going to have to be closed to new entries after three more groups. If someone was further back in the line than that, they could go to the ticket booth and get a new ticket for any other night in October. I understood the logic. The maze had to close at some time after all, but I still found myself anxiously wondering if we would make the cut. I knew it meant a lot to Jenny, and the odds of wrangling Allison to come out a second time this month were slim to none. To my relief, the gatekeeper walked past us and cut the line right behind me where we were standing. A few of the people muttered as they shuffled off, but then we were being ushered into the maze as one big final group and the noises and lights from the outside world faded away between the rows of corn that surrounded us on every side. The corn maze felt eerily separate from the place we had just left. The corn dampened sound and light, and with no light set up within the maze itself, everything had a fuzzy blue-black quality to it. The half-moon overhead and the ambient light from the rest of the attractions and booths provided just enough illumination to make out the dirt path as we walked forward, a faintly visible ribbon of dirt that wound and crisscrossed the further we went into the maze. We had no flashlights, but instead took turns using our phones as flashlight setting to provide some additional light. In some ways, it only made things more disorienting. The small circle of bright white light would make its best feeble effort to cut through the murk but it also made the surrounding dark seem that much darker. After a few minutes, we gave up on using our lights unless we were checking the map for some sign of where we actually were. The thing with the corn maze is that, like Jenny had said, everything looks the same. You're surrounded by 12-foot-high stalks on every side, so tightly planted that you can't see more than a foot into the rows, much less the path that is 10 feet away on the other side. And the corn all looks the same. You try to find distinct curves or intersections, things that are unique enough that you can find their twin on a small map and get a bead on your location. Then you realize that the map is not entirely accurate and that there are several places on it that could be your special spot. So do you pick one up and try to use the map? You can, but that only works if you know where you're starting from. Do you ignore the map and just keep going? It's an option, but it's also a good way to wander for hours. We'd been in there for over 30 minutes, and with no real discernible progress towards the exit when Jenny asked a question. I wonder if you could stay in here after they're closed for the night. At first, I misunderstood what she meant. I thought she was worried that we might get stuck in here overnight, and I was quick to assure her that we could always just push through the corner, bearing that yell until someone found us as they undoubtedly would have people checking for stragglers before calling it a night. But Jenny shook her head. No, I mean, if we wanted to stay in after it was closed, just to explore and say we did it, could we get away with it? I expected Allison to have some smart comment at the suggestion, but she surprised me by showing interest. You know, I bet we could. Even if they send people through to get people out that are lost or don't want to leave, they can't find everybody, particularly if you don't want to be found. If we hid in the corn deep enough and stayed quiet, I bet they'd never know it, 
Then we could do whatever we wanted and leave when we got ready. I hated to be the wet blanket, but the idea sounded really boring and dumb to me. Plus, if I'm being honest, I'm not much for breaking the rules. Aside from any far-flung fears of the police being called if we were found lingering after hours or they noticed our car had never left the lot, just the embarrassment of being yelled at and escorted off the farm by the staff made my stomach squirm. Still, I didn't want to appear uncool or unfun, so I tried to look casual as I shrugged. Even if we could, what would be the point? We got in here after 10, and it's close to 11 now. We have to figure that they're going to let people stay until at least 11.30 or 12, right? Otherwise, people would get pissed for not getting along in the maze. So we're talking about killing time for an hour or more than just hiding in the corn for, what, another hour? Just so we can walk around the same maze we just walked around now? I saw Jenny's disappointed expression and tried to soften my words. I mean, we can, if you want. I just don't know that we'll have fun. I could hear the insincerity in my voice and hoped I was the only one. You suck. I bet you graduated first at the academy. Allison was frowning on me. I raised an eyebrow. Academy? She gave me a toothy smile. The fun police academy, you little bitch. She turned to Jenny. Ignore him. He's all butthurt if he doesn't return a library book on time. Plus, he checks out library books, so his vote doesn't count. And if you're down, I'm down. I felt anger and embarrassment tightening in my chest, but I couldn't think of any reply that wouldn't make me look worse. Besides, Jenny was already nodding excitedly and looking back to me. Are you cool with it, Kyle? I smiled weakly. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm probably wrong, and it'll be really fun. However, I couldn't help but add, and if we get bored, we can always change our minds. We started back walking through the maze, and occasionally I would see a glimpse of flashlight through the rows or hear someone talking or laughing some distance away, but we didn't run into anyone else despite the massive amount of people that had been led before us. At 11, an announcement went out over a hidden set of speakers somewhere. The core maze is now closed. Please exit the maze immediately. Thank you for coming. If you can't find your way out, yell and we will come find you. Allison poked me in the ribs and waggled her eyebrows. See, scaredy cat? Not so long to wait after all. Glancing back at Jenny, she grinned. Let's find a good hiding spot. We walked for a couple more minutes before finding a secluded corner that seemed to be especially dense with corn stalks. One concern that if you went deep in on one side, you may be visible on another side if a different part of the maze was cut too close to your hiding spot. But it seemed we had made it to one of the outer edges of the map, and as we slowly treaded our way into the corn, there were no signs of another path coming into view. Instead, there was just increasing darkness and the claustrophobic feel of stalks pressing in on you from all sides as a dry, leafy smell filled your nose and coated your tongue. Jenny was holding my hand as we went into the corn, and I felt sure she could tell my own was sweating, but she never said anything, and as we settled into a spot to wait out anyone searching the maze, she gave my hand a squeeze. Thank you for doing this, Kyle. It means a lot. I could rarely make her out in the dark, but smiled at her words anyway, squeezing her hand back. Sure thing, it's kind of cool. In truth, I could barely breathe in that place, my chest feeling like it was surrounded by a slowly tightening belt as the minutes crawled by. I checked my phone and saw that 20 minutes had passed. Speaking to where I thought Allison was next to me, I let out a dry croak. Are we good? No sign of anyone? Yeah, let's get back. Just be quiet, though. I started back the way we'd came the way I thought we had come at least, but I didn't see any break in the corn ahead of us. If anything, it seemed to get darker. After a few more feet, I knew why. There's a wall here. What? Allison was coming up behind me and I could hear the irritation in her voice. What the fuck do you mean a wall? She reached past me and put her hand against the brick wall. I... Heard her let out a breath, and suddenly her cell phone's light was on, illuminating a gray brick wall buried among the corn and going up at least ten feet. 
As she panned the light side to side, we could see that the wall stretched onto our left and right as far as the light would reach. What? I don't understand. We would have seen this, right? We would have seen the giant brick wall when we pulled into the parking lot. I think there's more corn on the other side. We both looked at Jenna as she spoke, her eyes wide. That's the only thing that makes sense. They must have more corn growing outside the wall, so from the ground it looks like it's just corn, when really the maze has walls in it. She bit her lip as she looked up at it. I don't know. Maybe it's so they can control how people come and go? Keep people from sneaking in without paying, I guess? I nodded, trying to speak with a confidence I didn't feel. Yeah, I bet that's it. It makes sense they want to keep people out that don't pay for a ticket. And it did make a certain amount of sense, even if something in my core said it was a lie. Either way, we know a direction that isn't blocked, so let's head that way and find our way out. I didn't know if that last bit was true either, as I thought we were headed in the right direction before when we'd hit the wall. Still, I turned left and stayed with the wall for a few more feet before veering away in a direction I hoped would lead us back to a path. And this time it did, and I found myself taking in burning lungfuls of the cold night air once I wasn't surrounded by the corn anymore. Jenny patted my back and I smiled at her. <laughs> I'm okay, just glad to be out of the corn. Looking around, I frowned, but I don't think I have any idea where we are. Allison took the map from me and started alternating between studying it and looking at the path we were on, trying to discern some unique featurette that would tell us which path this actually was. She stopped when the stillness of the night was pierced by the high-pitched squeal of a pig. We all looked at each other with anxious expressions. They called this place a farm, but it was an attraction, not a real working farm with livestock. Why would there be a pig out here? I was about to ask that very question when the music began. Strange, discordant music that would occasionally be punctuated by another cry from a pig or some other creature. And underneath it all, we could hear the low, throaty thumb of some kind of singing. I looked up at the inky sky as though it would help me place where the sounds were coming from. I couldn't tell much, but it was somewhere close by, somewhere in the maze if I had to guess. Now I did speak, my voice barely a whisper, and my own fear reflected in their faces as they looked at me. We're not alone in here. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. After a moment of conversation, we decided to head straight into the direction we thought would put us up somewhere between the entrance to the maze and the parking lot. We started moving, ignoring the path and just quietly pushing our way through the cornstalk walls of the maze while trying to stay oriented towards our goal. We were relying on our sense of direction and the brick wall to our right, our theory being that the wall was likely fairly straight, and if we kept it on our right, we shouldn't get turned around. The music and pig cries didn't lessen as we moved. If anything, they got louder. But I wasn't sure it was because we were moving closer to the source. It was almost like the air itself, or maybe the corn, was suffused with the sounds, and the longer we walked, the more I felt that the animal squeals were digging into my brain, and the eerie rhythms of the music and singing were worming into my bones. Then we hit another wall. Fuck, Allison said in a loud whisper. She turned to me, and I could see how upset she was getting. I wanted to hug her, but instead I tried to sound calm. It's okay. Let's turn left. This wall has to end because this is the side we entered on. There has to be a break somewhere, right? Allison and Jenny nodded and we went on. Between our intermittent walks through the deeper corn and my steadily rising panic, I was finding it harder and harder to breathe. Maybe that's why I didn't hear the footsteps behind us. I felt a hand close tightly on the back of my shirt as Allison whispered in my ear. 
There's someone behind us. I thought I heard them a minute ago, but I couldn't see anything. Then when we were at that last patch of corn, I know I heard someone else move the stalks after we were all out. My heart leapt, but I forced myself to keep walking. Jenny was holding my hands again, but she was on the opposite side of where Allison was talking, so I didn't know if she heard what my sister had said. I gave Jenny's hand a squeeze to get her attention and spoke in a slightly louder whisper than Allison's. There's someone behind us, and we need to run. Allison, hold my hand and we'll stay together. When you see a break in the wall, we turn and head for the parking lot. Allison took my other hand as I strained my ears for sounds from behind us. I couldn't be sure, but I thought I could barely make out the rustle of a heavy foot stepping on each of the dead corn leaves that littered the floor of our current path. Squeezing both of their hands, I whispered, One, two, three, go. And we took off running. Allison was faster than either myself or Jenny, but she slowed her pace as she realized she was going to pull too far ahead to hold my hand. I kept looking to my right, waiting for some sign of light or the world beyond the corn, but all I saw was darkness. It seemed impossible. The maze was big, but it wasn't that big. We were moving at a good rate of speed and had already been walking in this direction for several minutes before we broke into a run. The sounds of music and animals had receded for a time, but they returned now and seemed to come from everywhere. I began looking in every direction, desperate for some sign of escape, some indication that we were finally out of the maze. And then I saw light ahead of us. Almost crying with relief, I surged ahead, pulling Allison and Jenny along with me. We stumbled out into a large open circle somewhere deep within the maze. There were tall torches spaced around the perimeter. In the center was a small group of people wearing robes and carved wooden masks. Some of them were singing while others played odd instruments. But as we broke through the corn, two of them spotted and looked at us for a moment. I was so shocked by what I was seeing that it took me a moment to register that Jenny had pulled free of my hand and ran to the staring couple. When they removed their masks, I understood both more and less. It was Jenny's parents. She was hugging them and talking excitedly, though their conversation was in hushed tones that didn't carry to us over the sound of the music and singing. I heard a new squeal and realized that there were massive looming shadows back behind the people. Suddenly the music and singing stopped and the crowd parted for the shadows to step forward. There were boars, four massive black boars that all sported sharp yellow tusks that they swiped at the air. There were boars, four massive black boars that all sported sharp yellow tusks that they swiped at the air as they trotted forward into the center of the clearing. Their eyes seemed to gleam red in the firelights, and I felt my bowels loosening as they stared at us with their small evil glares. Not knowing what else to do, I looked at Jenny, who was absently patting one of the boars as she smiled up at her mother. Jenny, what is all this? She looked at me, her face hardening. This is what's necessary, Kyle. I know you feel scared and betrayed, but we don't have a choice in this. I shook my head, bewildered. What? Who is we? What are you talking about? She sighed and gestured to the group of people gathered around them. This is my real family. My parents and I are part of a very special group. I guess you could call it a religion, though that's not really right. But the patrons of our way of life, of our power and knowledge, they're losing a... She smiled ruefully and shook her head as her mother patted her shoulder. No, they've lost a battle against a stronger foe. There is a new king of hell, and we must pledge our allegiance to him before it's too late. One of the other people stepped forward and pulled off their mask, revealing the plump, dark-skinned face of a woman that looked like an elementary school teacher or librarian. That's blasphemy. The infernal order will be restored. I've tried to hold my tongue, but we should not be throwing our lot with that thing, even if it would let us. Jenny's father gestured, and one of the other masked figures punched the woman in the stomach hard enough that she doubled over under the dirt. Patrice, I've told you before, you're either on board or you're meat. Guess you've made your choice. He stroked Jenny's hair and in a softer tone. 
Honey, it's time to prepare the vessels. Jenny nodded and looked up at a large bowl that was sitting nearby the ground. As if on cue, the boars all simultaneously knelt down and she began to dip her hand into the bowl and pull out a white paste of some kind. One by one, she painted symbols on the large, wide foreheads of the beast as her mother intoned some kind of prayer. Great hunter, new king of hell, we beseech you to take this offering in your name. Take these creatures as your vessels, use them for your ends, and make their hunt your hunt. Their kills, your kill. And now, by the blood and the fear and the life that is consumed, that we pledge to serve you as we served the infernal court in times past. This we pledge. With that, she turned and pointed at Patrice. You're not part of this. You're now part of them. The meat. The prey. As one of the boars turned and regarded her briefly with the same hatred they had previously served for Allison and me. You're all fucking crazy. Allison had let go of my hand and took a step forward before a warning snort from the closest boar made her retreat. She pointed a finger at Jenny. You fucking bitch. We took you in. Kyle has done everything to make you feel better. And what? It's all a trick? A trap? Because you're all part of some satanic cult or some bullshit? Jenny smiled thinly at her and waggled her hand. Technically, we're not satanic, but potato, tomato. Pretty much, yeah. But you should be saving your breath, you know, for the running and screaming. Allison stepped forward again, and I saw she had a small can in her hand. Pepper spray. We had you, cunt. She hit the button and quickly fanned it back and forth into the faces of the four boars. The maze echoed with her angry screams of pain, and Allison spun back to me and grabbed my arm. Go! We plunged back into the corn, my sister's speed and strength causing her to nearly drag me along as we went off into a new direction, from the way we started. There was no time or breath to spare for talking or planning. I was just trying not to slow her down as my lungs burned and my heart thudded in my ears. Almost like the end of a terrible dream, I thought I could make out electrical lights ahead. The ticket booth. I never saw the thing that tripped me. One moment I was up, still running and keeping decent pace with Allison. The next moment I was covered in dirt and gasping to reclaim the breath that had been knocked out of me. She stopped immediately and came back to pick me up. That was all the time the boars needed. A black blur swept by and drove her off her feet. She landed ten feet further away, having actually skidded out of the edge of the corn and bumped against a trash can filled the remains of that night's crowd. I crawled forward and got to my feet, intent on helping her, but as I moved past the last of the corn, two of the boars bore down on her again, impaling her leg and her side with their now bloody tusks. I screamed and went to attack them, to stop them from hurting her more when I heard Allison's voice. Go. Run. Now. Take them. I saw she was pointing with a twisted hand to where her pepper spray had fallen. It was attached to her car keys. I picked them up, planning on using the spray against the boars again, but a third was on her way now too, all of them stomping and cutting and biting as they tore her apart. It was too late, or at least that's what I told myself as I looked on in terror. So I ran, tears streaming down my face. I passed the ticket booth in the gate before turning to head into the parking lot. The boars didn't follow, and though I could barely see through my sobbing, I managed to find the car easily in the most empty lot. I got in and was cranking up when I heard a knock at my window. I jumped and looked out to see Jenny smiling at me. We got our two sacrifices, so the boars aren't coming for you. I'm glad that Patrice decided to pipe up. I didn't want you to be taken tonight. She looked slightly sad. I really did always like you the best, Kyle. I didn't want to roll down the window, so I just yelled through the glass. I'm going to fucking kill you. She said something else, but I was already slamming the car into reverse with the intention of running her over. I stopped to put it in drive, and when I looked up... I told my parents and the police what happened, but no evidence has been found. No suspects have been arrested. The cornfield has been abandoned, and Jenny has joined her parents as missing persons. I know that no one believes me, at least not the more fantastic parts of what happened. 
My parents think they were part of some crazy cult and that I either imagined or exaggerated the boars and the walls and the rest. I, I can't say I blame them. When they checked out the cornfield, they didn't find any walls or signs of animals out there. But I know what happened to me, what happened to my sister. And I know it's not over. Because I remember the last thing that Jenny said as I tried to run her down for killing Allison, for betraying us all. See you next October.